41, verses 1 through 36. Before we get to our text, I was thinking uh, about uh, the Christian organization Athletes in Action. Uh, Decades ago, and then other organizations kind of caught on, they began talking at their camps to collegiate and professional athletes about playing with an audience of one in mind. The intent of the phrase was to help Christian athletes remember that everywhere in life, even in a stadium full of cheering fans, we live and move and have our being in Him. And it's His pleasure we should pursue above all else. According to Athletes in Action, uh, this phrase, audience of one, it means that we are playing for an audience of one. When the lights go on and all eyes are fixed on us, our eyes are fixed on Him, Jesus, the creator of the universe. It's not just a slogan, it's a lifestyle, living for Him, playing for Him, giving Him all the glory. This morning, Joseph finds himself with an audience, an audience of one in front of the most powerful man in the world at that time, the Pharaoh of Egypt. But it's ultimately not Pharaoh who is the audience that Joseph recognizes. It is the audience he has before the Lord, a greater and more powerful king. And that is the audience of one that Joseph cares most about. Let's read Genesis 41, verses 1 through 36. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh woke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a a servant of the captain of of the guard. When he told When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. And there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable favorable answer. 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poorly and very, poor and very ugly and thin, each as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered thin and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears plighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will rise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and make one fifth and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word made flesh in Jesus Christ, your word given to us. Lord, we pray that as you have promised by your spirit, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that we would be not only transformed by your word, but conformed to it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our series on the life of Joseph that we've titled The Gospel According to Joseph. And last week, Joseph was joined in prison by Pharaoh's cupbearer and chief baker. Both had dreams and Joseph was able to interpret them because the Lord gave him wisdom to do so. And before the cupbearer is released, you'll remember that Joseph asked him to remember him before Pharaoh, to do him kindness, or in the Hebrew, hesed, which is covenantal love. Yet the cupbearer forgets Joseph. His dream does come true, and while Joseph sees his dream come true, Joseph must wait for his dreams. We saw that because of the Lord's hesed love, we too can have faith, hope, and persistent love as we wait. This morning we come, we continue in Joseph's story, and it's been full, two full years, the text says, since Joseph interpreted those dreams in prison. 
And in fact, it's been 13 years now since Joseph found himself sold into slavery. A few had asked me about the timeline uh, before, and I misspoke and said it had been 20 years that Joseph was, uh, had waited until the text that we are in today. But it will be uh, 20 years until Joseph sees his family again. So I was right about the 20, just forgot which, where on the timeline it fit. We don't know exactly how long Joseph was in prison. It was at least two years, but certainly more than that as the, uh, the, uh, the jailer uh, sees Joseph uh, his, being blessed by God and puts him in, in charge of, of, of all the prisoners. Scripture doesn't give us an exact number of years, but Jewish rabbinical tradition teaches that it was likely 10 years total or 10 plus the two mentioned in Scripture. And whether it was just a bit more than two years or 12, it's a long time to wait in prison for your release for something that you didn't do. And many of us will find ourselves waiting years and years for release from the pits of our lives. And yet the Lord is faithful to Joseph and faithful to us. We see that Pharaoh dreams these dreams that seem to have no interpretation. And then, after no one can interpret these dreams, his cupbearer remembers Joseph. In verse 9, we read that the cupbearer states that he remembers his offenses. This is literally, he remembers his sins. He's remembering his sins against Joseph for getting to show Hesed toward him. His sin of breaking Hesed or covenantal love with Joseph. And he repents of his sin while offering to help what Pharaoh has need of. He's, willingly, he's willing to publicly repent of his sin. Isn't that kind of odd. I mean, think how easy it would have been for him not to confess his sin, right? There's no one there who <laughs> could confirm or deny what this guy says. He could have just told Pharaoh about this Hebrew who could interpret dreams. No one would have known if he didn't repent of his sin. I don't know about you, but if no one would find me out, I'm slow to repent of sin that only I know about. How much more are those who know the hesed, the love of our Father, the forgiveness we have in Christ, the security we have in the Holy Spirit, able to confess when we have sinned, whether anyone would know or not? You see, the gospel actually empowers us to repent of our sin to freely and openly say, I have sinned, whether anyone would know it or not. It is the gospel that reminds us that we have security, forgiveness, that we are able to confess our sin. Whether anyone would know it or not, and why would we do that? We do it so that those who we have sinned against are known. That those who we have sinned against, that it might be known that we have actually sinned against them, whether they would ever find out or not. But they would know the hope of the gospel that we have as well. 
that we would know their forgiveness as well. And so Joseph finds himself being brought out of the pit, the text says. He's gone from pit to pit. He's brought out of the pit of the prison. This will be the last time that Joseph finds himself in a pit. We were at Jubilee Professional on Friday, and Abe Cho, who used to be a pastor at Redeemer in New York City and now is on staff with their Redeemer city-to-city effort, he taught on the four-part story of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And he used the author Kurt Vonnegut's explanation of every story to illustrate this four-part story of Scripture. Kurt calls the shape of stories, quote, the boy in the hole. The story begins with relative good fortune or neutral fortune. The character experiences good fortune. They fall into ill fortune. They are pulled from the hole or pit by some external turn of fate, and they are restored. Looks like this on a graph. Not only does Vonnegut's shape of a story follow the greatest story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. But the story of Joseph, like every story, follows the same shape. And so the boy in a pit is about to experience his redemption and subsequent restoration. Our stories have similar shapes. And what God is doing in the pits of our stories is often beyond our sight and understanding. All we see are the walls of the pit or that little bit of sky above us. And yet God is with us and will in due time bring us from the pit and place our feet upon the rock David, the eventual king of Israel, writes about his experiences being in the pits of life. David's story has many boy-in-the-hole cycles. It goes up and down and up and down and up and down. But he writes in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Joseph waited and now finds himself in the audience of Pharaoh. He's been taken from the pit, the most powerful man in the world, and Pharaoh gives him credit for his ability to interpret dreams and how easy would it have been for Joseph to take the credit, right? Just as easy as it would have been for the cupbearer to not confess his sin publicly. Joseph could have easily taken credit for his ability to interpret dreams or merely just allow Pharaoh to assume this of him. But instead, Joseph directs Pharaoh to the one who ultimately can interpret dreams. It is not me, or it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer, Joseph says. Now, we may think, well, of course Joseph is going to say this. It's it's God who gives interpretations. How else would he interpret dreams? But 
from the text, it doesn't seem that Joseph goes off into some prayer closet and starts praying and asking God to give him this interpretation of the dream. He's not, we don't see in the scripture that he sits and, and, and asks and begs God to give him this interpretation that he might give it to Pharaoh. It would seem from the text that the Lord has gifted Joseph with this ability and wisdom. Right? Because the text talks about the magicians and wise men of, of Egypt. They were to be gifted and have the wisdom for doing these things and for interpreting these things, but the Scripture says they could not do it. But Joseph was given the ability by God to do it. He was gifted the ability and wisdom. And while Joseph has this ability, he gives glory to God for this gifting. He doesn't keep it for himself. He doesn't say, yeah, <laughs> that's just just who I am. No, he gives glory to the one who gives it to him. And while we may not be able to interpret dreams, the Lord has given us all different gifts and graces. He's given what we call often natural abilities to each of us. And yet they're not natural. They're given to us by God. They're given to each of us for us to use for his glory. How easy it is for us to, to not see God's hand, God's presence with us in these things. Whether we are good with working with our hands, with numbers, with design, art, music, cooking, or whatever we have gifts, wisdom, and ability for, it is all from the Lord for our good, for the good of our neighbor, but ultimately for the glory of God. And while Joseph had an audience of one with Pharaoh, ultimately in that moment and in every moment of his life, he was before an audience of one, before the Lord God. If we remember that God is my audience and that he is the one for whom I am living, then we will be free to give him the credit that he alone deserves. We'll be content to live in the shadow of his glory and not seek our own. As Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, notice he uses the opportunity to remind Pharaoh that as powerful as he is, it is God who is in control. It is God whom Pharaoh rules under, but he does this without belittling Pharaoh, but at the same time putting Pharaoh in his proper place. Joseph repeatedly points out to Pharaoh, it is God as the one who truly has this power. It was God who had revealed this to Pharaoh, and Joseph says in, verse, in chapter 41, verse 25, and God who had shown him what he is about to do in 41, 28. Joseph's testimony about God made the people around him start talking about God, about taking God into account as well. Joseph continues to give Pharaoh this plan. And notice he does it without even being asked. He just interprets the dream and then tells Pharaoh what he should do. It's an audacious plan, one that will likely come with some political blowback, right? To, to take seven years of plenty. I mean, people will be like, look how good it is. Look how great it is. And you're going to take a fifth of what 
we've produced? Come on. It's an audacious plan. And yet Pharaoh sees that God is with Joseph and doesn't hesitate. Joseph's faith in God was contagious, having an impact even on the Pharaoh of Egypt, the greatest ruler of the world at that time. Commenting on this passage, Ian Duguid makes an observation. He says, what is truly remarkable, of course, is that we find such an idea remarkable. Speaking about Joseph, speaking about God and about this plan before Pharaoh. We are people of such little faith that we rarely believe that the things we say will make a difference, particularly if we are speaking to hardened unbelievers or telling people something that we think they won't want to hear. This applies both to the opportunities that we have to share our faith and, more broadly, to share biblical wisdom in our wider vocations. We often choose to stay silent about our faith in situations where we ought to speak because we don't expect people to respond positively to our words. We have forgotten God's role in the equation. Pharaoh did not respond to the force of Joseph's intellectual argument or to his impassioned rhetoric. God was sovereignly at work in Pharaoh's heart, confirming the truth of Joseph's words so that he immediately found Joseph's proposal to make sense. Did you catch what Ian was saying? In our evangelistic efforts, we should, of course, believe that God is at work in the hearts of others. And the only reason they will respond to the hope of Christ is not because of our great rhetoric or intellectual argument, not that those shouldn't be things that we seek to show passion, to have a well-reasoned argument. But they respond because God is already at work in their hearts. But don't stop there with our evangelism. That's where we often stop as Christians. That's our job. But Ian goes further. Did you notice that? To our vocations. Biblical wisdom is set is just as much for our church and family life as it is for all of life, even and especially our vocations. Our vocations need godly wisdom infused into our work and interactions with our coworkers, not to Christianize our work or evangelize our coworkers, as good as that is, but to bring about good and right outcomes to bring flourishing to the work, to the vocation that God has given us, whether it's how we clean a house or build a house, write code for a computer program, teach, study in school, or whatever else we might do. When we enter that space, either physically or intellectually, we bring God with us, right? Joseph brought the presence of God with him into the presence of Pharaoh, Right? The, script, the text said before, God was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Guess what, brothers and sisters? The Lord is with us. The Holy Spirit dwells within every part of our being. And wherever we enter, whatever relationship we enter into, whatever space we enter into, the Lord is there with us. Whatever we do, physically, intellectually, we bring God with us. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us 
bringing his wisdom if we listen into every sphere, into every sphere of life. Jesus, let me conclude with this. Jesus is the one whom Joseph points us to. He also lived before an audience of one as well. He lived before the Father. He says the Father was in him and he was in the Father. Everything he did was to glorify his Father in heaven, even in ultimately living out his vocation as the Savior of the world, the Lamb without blemish, the once and for all sacrifice for sin. And as he stood before the powerful, he pointed them to his Father and to himself as the one in whom the world would be saved through an incredibly audacious plan, one that would bring life through death. Jesus has promised us that by faith in his life, death, and resurrection, he is with us by the Holy Spirit, that he is in us, and we are in him, Scripture says. He is with us in every place, in every situation of life, and we live before an audience of one. Because Jesus is in us, and we in him, we can live all of life before an audience of one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, and we praise you for Jesus. We thank you for the way in which he has given us life through death. And Lord, we thank you that you are dwelling in us and that wherever we go, you are with us, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Lord, I pray that you would remind us this day that wherever we go, whatever we do, you are there. And that if we would indeed listen Lord, we have the words of life, <laughs> not only to bring people to faith in Jesus, but we have the words of life for the work of life, for the things that you've called us to do as your people. Help us, Lord God, to see, to know and to speak that you are already at work and the hearts of those who need to hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.